I'm going on vacation. <laughs> a really long one. Um, uh, I, just to follow up, I mean, this has been a conversation um, that's been going on uh, since uh, pretty much the beginning of the year. And, uh, you know, a lot of it is, it, it is one of those things where God, I always say, you know, people come, will come to Door of Hope and have ideas about how they can serve in, in church. And I, I love when people tell me, like, the Lord told me I'm supposed to be the new worship leader at Door of Hope. I'm like, oh, has he told anyone else that? Uh, and he's like, uh, you know, it's like God told me to be a singer, but you can't sing. Like, that's a, it's a, dangerous, it's a dangerous game to play. Um, but when you have, I, I believe firmly in, uh, in decision-making, especially around ministry, um, requires input from the community. And when you have consistent input from people outside of Door of Hope, from my wife, from the elders, from the staff, uh, then you have to pay attention to that. And, and when I myself am saying, I feel like the Lord is putting this on my heart. And the big thing, and you guys, um, as you try to even absorb or kind of hear what was just stated, was just the realization, and I want to say as gracious as the elders are, and the elders who are before the group of elders we have, now that, that I'm my own man, and there are many things that I um, have done, you know, uh, outside of my gifting that's impacted family and staff, and we all have weak points uh, in our personalities, and we need to have, uh, you know, the beauty of a, of a church and a staff and of an elder team is that is hopefully we're filling in each other's weak points so that we can function in our strengths. And I am extremely excited um, about Evan in this, uh, in this role. I mean, Evan's been, been with me here at Door of Hope for over 11 years. Um, so uh, his faithfulness, uh, and he is uh, almost seemingly unwavered by the ups and downs, just consistent. And that's exactly what the church needs. We are in a time of, of growth um, and a time where there just seems to be momentum and excitement and real ownership um, taken uh, in responsibility for the church, not only by the elders, but by the staff as well. And that shared leadership is kind of a, it's, it's a real unique season that we're in. And, it, and it's, um, it's in that place where I began to really ask hard questions about, I want to be a door of hope for the long haul, and I want to do it in a way that's, that blesses the church. And as the church has grown, um, a, as a guy who is a planter and, and has vision and creative, uh, it, was, it was like like breathing the first few years. Like it was just, it came naturally. As the church got more complex and organization grew, it became increasingly evident that I was beginning to be stretched beyond what I was naturally good at in certain areas. And so um, understanding that and finally, it makes me a little bummed that it's taken me 13 years to like say, yeah, no, I'm actually not very good at that. Um, and uh, and we need to we need to fill in those gaps. Has uh, been has been a really crucial learning experience for me, and really has brought me to what I'm going to share with you guys today. Um, and this will be so. Just so you guys know what's happening today, I'm going to be preaching this Sunday morning, um, Palm Sunday. Um, Ian will be teaching Sunday morning, and then I'm going to be 
taking, we're going to be going through the the content essentially of my book, The Seven Statements of the Cross, over the seven days of Holy Week. And so I had this idea of going out with a bang before the sabbatical, which is preach every single night um, for a week straight. Uh, and because uh, I am a glutton for punishment. Um, uh, Northeast will be con- contributing to a couple nights to that, but we'll meet Sunday night through Saturday night and then um, Easter Sunday. So today, and then I will be preaching. Uh, all those evening services and then the Sunday morning service. Um, but uh, I want to, um, uh, in this kind of, this se- series that I've been doing on paradox, which this very series kind of began, began out of a confession that I made, um, that I was tired. And there's a lot of factors that played into that. Um, my dad's death definitely is not, <laughs> that was kind of like an extra just wrench thrown in for good measure uh, to make sure that... Um, that uh, I truly learned the lesson that humility is often learned in the school of humiliation, that life is far more difficult than we like to admit, um, and when you're an optimist, that's a hard thing to admit. And so today I want to talk about um, the call that Jesus places upon us as his followers um, to a life of meekness. And meekness is, is a word that is deeply misunderstood, um, especially in a, in a time in which um, power seems to be exalted. And power right now is terrifyingly on display in our world um, and the hunger for power. Uh, and we have a Russian president who, you know, from all reading, it seems, sees himself as, you know, uh, like the new Tsar rebuilding uh, an empire, and it is about empire, and it shows us the danger of power um, and the danger of not humbling ourselves to recognize that we do not have all the answers and that we need one another and we need community and we need a spirit of humility and a spirit of meekness um, because life is challenging, um, and this is why the church has to understand that in these last days, um, things are going to increasingly get darker and our need for one another um, is, is, is even more and more um, being felt, I think, by the church. And I think it's why so many people are coming back now is they're recognizing it's not easy to be Christians alone. Um, in order to set up a message on meekness, because I think that meekness and humility, and even I would go as far as to say humiliation, often becomes a means by which we learn the power of humility and meekness. We kind of need things to go wrong in our lives to recognize um, our, uh, um, our need for others and our need for a disposition of, of humility, to not be easily offended um, when life throws curveballs, to not be um, overly embarrassed by our failures. But I think that the person who walks in meekness understands that, that all they have comes to them from God. Uh, they live life with an open hand, an open-handedness that allows them to maintain joy even when life throws difficult things at us. So I thought it would be only be appropriate um, to share the nature of, because this little story from my book is a perfect picture of what I think is always behind every story. Every, what seems like a victory always has an underbelly that without meekness we 
will not be able to um, in, enjoy it. So I'll share something that will allow you to laugh at my expense. Okay. This is entitled The First Kiss. It's already bad. <laughs> so my first kiss came at the end um, of the first two weeks of sixth grade. I had moved to eastern Washington. I was in Kennewick. And I met this girl named Nettie Stordahl. I probably shouldn't say her name. Because if you met a Nettie Stordahl, it's odds are it's the girl I kissed. Um, because I've never met anyone named Nettie before <laughs> in my life. Um, and I kissed her at the prompting of my friend Erin. I didn't actually really want to kiss her. I was nervous. But she was, she was very aggressive. Very, very modern. Very modern woman. And... and and, and of course, because it was sixth grade, it was, it was awkwardly a French kiss. Um, it, I, I don't really remember what she looked like. She was taller than me and had braces and a kind but forgettable personality, but more than likely just undeveloped and shy. Um, we're, we were in the octagon shed behind my mobile home. Our hands were balmy, our hearts racing, our open mouths like two hungry carps came together. <laughs> while our... Tongues wrestled for dominance for what felt like an eternity. I opened my eyes. Hers were tightly shut with what looked like a painful determination. And just behind her, floating in the air like the presence of death, was an enormous black widow. The blood-red hourglass stood out from her metallic black abdomen with eerie illumination, the body blacker than the black of the room, creating an ominous portent that told me my time was up. I jerked my mouth and exhausted tongue free from what felt like a toilet plunger level suction. <laughs> Cutting my lip on her braces and extracting from her confused but relieved face the simple question, what's wrong? I pointed in silence to the silent and dangerous third uninvited guest and Nettie in terror ran out of the shed wiping the spittle from her mouth. The next day I received the classic innocuous sixth grade six word note on my desk. I want to break up. Sorry, Nettie. <laughs> Complete with a small heart drawn after her name to soften the blow. Or as I think back, maybe just revealing like me, she was just a kid. I, <laughs> I just had to share the story because it was good. It had nothing to do with the message at all. No, I, I feel like that story is like, that's the reality of of life. I mean, we often leave out the failures and we try to maintain the victories in our minds. But when you're writing out a memoir, it's amazing to me. Uh, I was sharing a bunch of these stories with, um, with uh, um, a psychologist, and he said, Josh, you know, every one of your stories have a singular theme. And I said, what's that theme? And I thought, I just thought it was being funny. And he goes, your life, your childhood is marked by this phrase, nothing lasts. And I was like, that is so depressing. And he's like, but that's what all of your stories communicate, is things come, things that seem to bring happiness and joy, and then they're taken away, that they're lost. And, and I thought a lot about that, and I was like, how does one maintain a certain sense of satisfaction in the fact that life comes with with as much um, discouragement and failure as it does with success. How, how does one maintain? How, how do you actually live in the light of, think of Teddy Roosevelt's famous speech, The Man in the Arena, 
that it's the one who's actually willing to get in the arena and fail, that actually lives uh, with a sense of, of excitement and vitality and, and meaningfulness. But, you, but the moment you're willing to step out and actually live is the moment you're also set up for failure and pain and loss within that living. And I actually think the answer to that question of how does one live um, with the fact that so much of life brings pain is found in this beautiful word meekness. Because meekness allows us to enter into the comedy of existence with an, an open-handedness, a recognition that no matter what the day brings, that all is well. Um, it's driven by Jesus' own words, which we'll consider on Good Friday, um, it is finished. That Jesus has done everything that needs to be done um, in order for us to live fully. But though it is finished in a true eschatological sense, in, a, in, a, in an all-encompassing, powerful, once-and-for-all act of Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection, it may be finished, but it is not over for us yet. And we have to navigate the intensity of life and the ups and downs and the joys and the failures. And often, there's, it seems, I love the, just the picture, and that really did happen. There was a massive black widow hanging directly behind her head. Um, and it lived in that shed forever. None of us wanted to mess with it because Eastern Washington is plagued with black widows. Uh, it, and, but I think of that, that, that is just this picture of these, these things, these disruptions, these things that terrorize life, that are looming in the dark, um, always threatening our existence. Maybe it's the wars and the rumors of wars. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a pandemic. Maybe it's the fear of the loss of love or the loss of, loss of a friend or the loss of a child. All of these things that, that will impact us. And what we have figured out as human beings is how to avoid pain. But it's actually unavoidable. And the longer you live, the more you have to recognize um, the, the fact that, that to live um, often feels impossible. And this is why I think Jesus brilliantly establishes what it looks like for us to be disciples. Blessed are the poor in spirit, as we considered last week, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those that recognize that what is needed to live is not their own ability, but Christ who now lives in me, as Paul said, is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That Jesus is saying, unless we recognize the own, our own poverty, our own, our own need for the other, we are not going to be satisfied people. In a world that tells you that you have all that it takes to be all that you want, um, and the endless amounts of books being sold to promote uh, positive thinking about one's own ability um, is, is a great uh, lie that is continually being propagated uh, that your best self is found from within. I would argue that your best self is found through surrender and in the context of community. Uh, and this is not the language of the day. But Jesus says, no, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The ones that recognize that they need help. 
It's the first step of the 12-step pro program and why it's so effective is that I can't fix myself. I need help. And Jesus said it's those that recognize the need for help that find the kingdom of heaven. He says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those that, that don't try to, to, to hide the pain or to, to bury it, but accept the difficulty. They come to the recognition of their own poverty. The, the blessed or the mourning is directly connected to the, to the poor in spirit. It's when we come to the end of ourselves and we're broken over that end that we actually find the comfort that we need. The greatest times of God's presence in my life has been in the greatest depths of despair. When I sat and looked at my father's dead body right after he passed and wept as I laid my head on his chest, it was in that moment that I felt God's love more fully than I'd felt actually in many years. Because God meets us in our grief. He can do much with a broken heart. He can do nothing with a divided heart. And I think that this is an, an important aspect of the, these, these, these beatitudes, the blessings, the happy person, um, the one who receives blessing from outside of themselves, from Christ. I love how they are built on each other. The poor in spirit, those who mourn. But here we have it. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. They're the ones that actually enjoy the earth, even in its brokenness, because they hold it all with an open hand. I think that this is important when we live in a world that thinks in terms of power, strength, self-assurance, and ability, that that is the key to world domination. It would be more accurate to say, blessed are the powerful and the aggressive, for they shall inherit the earth. That's not what Jesus says. And none of the great conquerors of the world uh, would have had meekness attributed to them. Nobody refers to Alexander the Great or Genghis Khan or Napoleon or Hitler or Stalin as meek men. They were power-hungry men, which tells us that the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. That the things that actually bring joy, but people don't necessarily say that any of those men were happy men either. And blessed literally means happy. And yet the pursuit of happiness is so central to existence. And yet the things that we pursue are the things that actually rob us of happiness. I love that meekness is a word in the Old Testament that literally means afflicted. It means humble. It even means poor. In, in, in the New Testament, it, it tends to mean mildness of disposition, gentleness of spirit and gentleness of spirit. But this is what the Son of Man declares to his disciple, that those who are essentially powerless, gentle, mild, and humble are to be heirs of the kingdom and rulers with him of the world. In other words, we cannot rule until we are under his rule. I, I was struck by this yesterday, the, this gentleness and mildness of disposition. I haven't even told Darcy this, but the, the thing that I've been, uh, my wife refers to herself as an HSP, a highly sensitive person, uh, no, which is really funny that she's married to a man who is uh, loud and intense. And uh, so I'm, I'm sure uh, just quietness is really meaningful to her. 
stillness, homemaking, uh, this consistency. And I prayed, her birthday was yesterday. My lovely wife turned 54 yesterday. Uh, and we had this amazing day. And the amazing day was driven, I, one of the things is, she always will say to me, she's like, you set the tone. I'm the same. You're the one that's all over the place. Um, and, uh, and, and the thing that I, I prayed for when I woke up in the morning was, Lord, give me a quiet and gentle spirit today. I think I, I, think I had a she, thumbs up. I just got a thumbs up from the wife. Meekness is not weakness. It's actually power under control. It's power under control. And I, I think that, that in order to define what meekness is, um, you have to consider what it's not. It, meekness is not idleness. It, it's focused, actually, and hardworking. In fact, for a person that's intense, the, a spirit of meekness requires even more work than almost anything else to, to maintain a quiet and gentle heart, a, a quiet and gentle spirit. Like, if you ask the staff, like, it is not natural for me to sit in a meeting and be still and be quiet, to give space. The, the lack of meekness often is, is felt in people of leadership and power. Um, and the reason they're often in leadership and power is because people follow them. But they, the reason people follow them is because they tend to be strong personalities that are comfortable leading. But a great leader in the kingdom of heaven is one that can, can give space for other people to to exist. Uh, they don't overwhelm a space or disappear in a space. They just have an awareness. They're not, it's, not a, it's not a laziness. It's not an idleness. It's focus. It's hardworking. Meekness is not mellowness. It's actually quiet intensity. Um, the person that I always like to use as an illustration of a, just a beautiful illustration of meekness is Tim Mackey. Um, Tim Mackey, for those of you that are newer to Door of Hope, Tim Mackey was a teaching pastor here with me for five years, and is the founder of the Bible Project. And he's, just, he's a PhD. He hates being called doctor. He would skateboard to church to work every day when he was on his dad. Um, and he, he just, there's, he has zero interest in the accolades that comes with being a PhD. His love and his passion is just the scripture. And he's given himself so fully to that, but like a little child, there's a, there's a, there's a quiet intensity, there's a focused, hard-working nature that he always represented. And, but it was, it, was, it was natural. It just, it's like, it's who he is. Uh, it wasn't even something he's trying to be. Uh, it, meekness is not weakness. It's strong and fearless. It, there's no need to make yourself known in this thing, because you're comfortable with who you are, as God has defined you to be. It's not tolerance either. There are those who think it's the avoidance of confrontation. Meekness is not the avoidance of confrontation, but it is, but it is most definitely the desire for self-preservation is not the focus of confrontation. You know, that when people get confused by the Psalms when David says, Lord, do I not hate um, your enemies? Um, uh, do I not hate the evil for they, they take your name in vain? His anger that would come out in the Psalms, and I always like to point out that David, we always get confused that there is so much anger and vitriol toward enemies in the Psalms, but we need to remember that that's the safest place to take your anger is to God in prayer, 
because the Psalms are prayer. Um, David never raised a finger against his greatest enemy, which was King Saul, um, but he definitely vented <laughs> to God in his Psalms. But what I love is that his venting is not about what is happening to him. His venting is about, about God being disrespected. Uh, and I think that that's a really, Psalm 119 is a great example of that. Do I not hate your enemies with a perfect hatred? He's upset about God's name being blasphemed. Um, and I, I think that, that meekness is not a, a tolerance, but it's not a self-absorbed um, self-preservation. Uh, it's a, it's, in fact, it's a, it, meekness would lead to a willingness to confront when, when we see another being hurt or another being, another being mistreated. It actually is what leads to the equity that the world so desperately wants. Chesterton once said, a man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. We have, we have learned how to distrust everything but ourselves when we should distrust ourselves the most. That's why I always say that the greatest enemy you'll ever face is yourself. In leading this church, I have discovered that I am my own worst enemy when it comes to God's work in and through me toward this community. But that will be true of all of us, and this is why we need to humbly surrender ourselves um, to the one who cho chooses to work with broken, foolish people like you and I. He has chosen the foolish to confound the wise. Dr. Lloyd-Jones sums up meekness as essentially a true view of oneself, expressing itself in attitude and conduct with respect to others. The man who is truly meek is the one who is truly amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. This makes him gentle, humble, sensitive, patient in all his dealings with others. Like the domestication of an animal, like a wild animal, that is now under control. That's what meekness is like. It's the spirit of man coming under the control of the spirit of God, which doesn't make you less of a human being. It actually begins to make you into humanity in the way that God intended humanity to be. This is why Jesus himself uh, is the picture of, of the spirit-filled man. What amazed the people uh, around the life of Jesus was not that they saw God in the flesh, but they saw man as God intended man to be. Man fully empowered by the Spirit, submitted to the will of the Father, Spirit-led. Remember after the baptism, the Spirit came upon him, and it says the Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. In other words, Jesus went where the Spirit led. And he said, I only speak those things that please the Father. I only do those things that please the Father. The Father has worked until now, and I continue to do the Father's work. This is the, the attitude of one who walks in meekness. When the Greeks came and said, we want to talk with Jesus, he could have gone back and been some famous teacher, some famous philosopher, but he's fixed his eyes upon Jerusalem toward the cross, toward his own death, because he was there to fulfill the will of the Father. The heart of God, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. That is how, how submitted he was. The oneness of God was revealed through the surrender, the meekness of the Son. And I love this because 
this idea of a wild animal now under control is a beautiful picture um, of, of what meekness should look like. I think it's safe to say, based upon the examples of Scripture, that meekness is strength. It is strength. So let's look at the various facets. I want us to just think through these in closing. Various facets of meekness is revealed in Scripture. Number one, the meek hope in and wait on the Lord. Jesus is alluding in this beatitude uh, to Psalm 37. It says in Psalm 37, 11, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. In verse 9 of that psalm, it says, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. They, the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. This whole psalm is about the blessing that comes upon those that, that walk in the way of God, that, that give themselves to Yahweh. Jesus is bringing us back to that psalm, and he's reminding us that the key to meekness is found on that first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that recognize they need help. Blessed are those that mourn over their own brokenness because God is a God of comfort who comforts those in their brokenness. And meekness is, that, is the process. It's the outcome of the process of recognizing our own brokenness and casting ourselves in total dependence upon Jesus. What we find now is that, is that our joy is found in trusting in God no matter what. That, that's what brings meaning to life. In fact, the meek don't defend themselves. They trust in God to be their defense. This is a really difficult thing that I've learned and that one of the things that can really weigh, and I never knew this. I've been in ministry now for 20 years, but I've been the lead pastor of Door of Hope for 13 years. And in those 13 years, people always say, like, it's a different thing. As an associate pastor, I went through plenty of difficult things, but I didn't understand uh, what it means to be the point person <laughs> and that complaints come to me at a different pace um, and f just the emails that one gets and the critiques. And I remember very clearly um, uh, I had a, a guy that worked with me in the very beginning of Door of Hope named Bob and he said to me, he said, listen, he said, you have to learn how to develop thick skin and a tender heart. Otherwise, if you have thin skin, um, you, if you have thin skin, you're going to get a hard heart. Uh, if you're easily offended by people's critiques and their complaints, uh, you are going to, it's going to eat you alive because everybody has opinions, everybody. And, and it's amazing. I mean, I, I, I've seen it firsthand. I've, I mean, and I learned early on that it is not fruitful to engage in a defense of oneself. Um, very, I've, I just did it recently, and I regretted it the moment. It, then it was just an email battle with a stranger. I still don't know who they are. And if you're here, I shouldn't have engaged on email. I'm sorry. I, have, I once again found myself in the shed with a black widow hanging in the background. <laughs> uh, we're not, we're not driven by a spirit of retaliation. The meek are never driven by a spirit of retaliation. 1 Peter 2.23 says, When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. Speaking of Jesus. 
When he suffered, he made no threats. Think about Jesus having the nails hammered into his hands. If meekness is that gentleness and quietness, th- Jesus barely spoke um, during his crucifixion. He spoke seven words that actually speak out the entire gospel, but none of those words were spoken against anyone. In fact, there, there was no retaliation. It was the opposite. His prayer for those that were nailing the nails into his hands and feet was, Father, forgive them for their functioning in ignorance, revealing that the heart of God is, 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 is a heart of forgiveness toward you and I. We can maintain a spirit of meekness when we know how much we've been forgiven. We can maintain, we can maintain a spirit of non-retaliation when we know how blessed we are that God has chosen in his mercy to love us in spite of our own brokenness. The more I understand how sinful I am, the more I understand how much I have been forgiven, the easier it is to forgive. That's the spirit of meekness. The meek are not concerned with their reputation or driven by their own self-interest. Think of these words of Jesus about Jesus by Paul in Philippians. Um, chapter 2 he says in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage rather he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross John Bunyan once said, he that is down need fear no fall. (laughs) The higher we climb to prove our point, the farther the fall. The meek are not proud for there is nothing they have that they do not believe is from God. This is why the first aspect of meekness is a complete trust in God. It's a waiting upon him. It's trusting him with your life. Secondly, the meek are teachable. I think that this is something that um, I have been forced over the years to keep asking myself the question, am I still teachable? And, and part of even this shift in my role is being teachable. It's being willing to accept, hey, you're not good at this. <laughs> that's really hard. That's harder than most of us think, to be told we're not good at something. Uh, is is a really is a really difficult thing. You guys ever watched? I to, I'm, I'm convinced it's a setup, but you know when you watch the um, uh, uh, like America's Got Talent or those when they do the tryouts for those shows, and they'll be like, you'll have like the one they love to bring on. It's like they purposefully pick unstable people that ha- have visions of grandeur. Let them try out. It's a cruel thing we do. It's amazing how we use people to entertain ourselves. Uh, but I am entertained. And they bring, they bring them in, and then they, they play, and they can't sing at all. And Simon will say something cruel like, why are you here? You can't sing. You're terrible. And they're like, and then they just go crazy and defend themselves. They're like, I am not terrible. And you're like, no, you, you actually were chosen to show the world how delusional you are and how terrible you are all at the same time but that's that's amplified but we all do it I can't tell you on tour 
in telecast when we toured full-time I had I never forget one time being in Chattanooga Tennessee and this mom brought her son to our we were playing a concert with um, this band David Crowder and uh, this mom brought her son to get him in front of me and David to play his song for us because she was so convinced that he should be signed and I've never seen a kid looked so uncomfortable. His mother was like functioning as like his agent. And he's just like this awkward, like this awkward boy whose mom is like decided, I don't even, I honestly, I think she got into the green room because she went to the church and the pastor, like she threatened to stop giving. I don't know what she did, but the boy, and then the boy plays the song and it was so bad. It was so, he was so terrible. And I, and I just felt bad for him because I think he hated his instrument more than I hated listening to it. And, uh, and, and it just, it made me so sad because it just, it speaks to the lack of teachability of, the, of, of how easy, as I said, that Chesterton quote, we should be far less trustful of ourselves. Um, but we're distrustful of everyone else around us. And what we've been taught in an age of victimization is if someone says, no, you're actually not good at that thing, is that we've been taught that you shouldn't trust them. They're just trying to bring you down. Maybe you should be brought down. I think if the gospel teaches us anything is that when any time someone brings a critique against us, we have, we have two options. We bring it before the Lord. If there's truth in it, you repent. If it's not true, you release it. The meek man isn't offended if it's true or isn't true. That's the point. Teachability is the ability to hear what's being said without being offended by it. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, says James, which is able to save your souls. In other words, it takes a meek spirit to receive the word into our lives. And that's the thing is that meekness is necessary if we're going to come under the authority of the Holy Spirit. The meek are gentle. Finally, in, in Matthew eleven twenty nine, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. It's the meek who acts in gentleness when they have the power to act with severity. And I think that that's a, that's a question. It's like when you, in your interactions with people, do you function in a spirit of meekness or are you a bull in a china shop? As parents with your kids, are you harsh with them or are you gentle? Is there a severity? Some of you may have experienced, I experienced severity in, in step-parents. There was a severity in my stepdads that I'm still reckoning with. Do, do you function in meekness? I've, I've seen this in, I've done enough marriage counseling to see couples where there's a, a spirit of severity and not meekness. There's always a distrust and the conflicts are, are constant because it's a battle. It's a battle in the marriage. And what a what a what a horrible thing for if our marriages are supposed to be this the, the safest relationship we're in when the marriage itself becomes a battleground, and there's a constant competition where we're just fulfilling what God spoke over Adam and Eve in the fall that this is going to be the nature. Nothing is worse when the battle of the sexes is played out in the in the home in a marriage. No, meekness is 
it requires a gentleness that means that I'm not offended when someone says something that's true. I'm also not offended when someone says something that isn't true. But I continue to believe the best about them because Jesus looks at us with grace. And I believe meekness requires a lens of grace on everything. I want to just close with this illustration. There are two, two um, animals in Scripture that represent um, kind of this, this picture of, of gentleness and peace. And that's the, it's the description given of Jesus in John 1. Behold the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world. John the Baptist declares that over Jesus. And Jesus, uh, as the sacrificial lamb, we need to remember that the lamb uh, is, is, is God's gentlest creature. It's a picture of meekness. But the dove, which is what comes upon Jesus, is always a picture of peace. And I think that it's, it's interesting that, that the lamb comes before the dove and that the meekness is what brings about the peace. In other words, when we take a posture of meekness, of gentleness, of humility before God and before one another, it is that, it is that position that allows the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, to actually empower us. If we want to be a Spirit-filled church, we have to be a church that's meek. This is why Paul was so harsh on the, first, on the Corinthian church because they were obsessed with the, with the gifts of the Spirit, but they had no meekness. They became arrogant in the spiritual giftings and chaos came out of it. And God is not a God of chaos. He's a God of peace. And if we want to be a Spirit-filled church, we need to understand that if we humble ourselves before God and before one another, that gives the, the, the outcome of that is the Spirit's presence which brings peace. This is why decision-making is go where the peace is. And sometimes the peace doesn't even make sense because it seems like we're going in a place that's dangerous or uncertain, but there's still peace. Um, I think that this is the outcome of humbling ourselves. He who sets his mind upon God will have the peace of God upon him. And I think that the blessing is this. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. How do we inherit the earth now? 1 Timothy 6.6 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain. We're blessed on the earth now because the one who has God has everything. In the future we are blessed because there is a coming order in which the king will be revealed and it says, Do you not know in 1 Corinthians 6.2 that the Lord's people will judge the world? This is the bliss of the God-controlled life. That is what it means to be meek. So I just simply say to all of you, my heart, it's very easy as a founder of a church to want to maintain control. It is not easy to say, I'm not organizationally gifted to lead this church in my current role to where it needs to go and where I believe God wants to lead it. And we need to rethink my role and we need to, we need to find, we need to, we need to build the team in a way that can actually move the church forward and to accept my own weaknesses as a leader um, and to step and to trust 
and to entrust the church to the elders and the staff is, is it's not easy. They call it founder syndrome, where guys stay way longer than they should. And I'm, I'm young, like it's not like I'm at retirement age. Um, but but I, I still believe that so many churches would probably do so much better if, if we as leaders took more time to assess how, how is my temperament possibly hurting the mission of the church? Um, and am I willing to honestly examine that? And am I willing to even invite the critiques of those that I work with and those around me? Am I willing to hear from my wife? Like, honey, you're not good at this and you're not happy because you're doing it. Am I willing to hear those words? A posture of meekness means that you're not gonna be offended when people speak hard things, but you're also going to believe the best and you're going to, and you're going to take the risk um, to make the right decisions uh, that would actually further bring God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And that's all my heart is. I hope you guys know that my heart for Dorf Hope is just that this church is blessed and that you are as cared for as you can be. And I don't want to do anything that damages what God is doing at this church. And so if that means me humbling myself and saying, yeah, I should not be the one like making all the decisions for the staff because that's just not my gifting. Um, then that, I think, I think that's one of the ways in which we can model meekness um, as a community. Uh, and I want to thank you guys for a believing the best. Uh, I am blessed by this church. This is a significant thing for me. Um, and sabbatical is not easy either. I'm, I'm not a guy that like rests well. So I'm going to learn. I'm going to try to sleep for the first month. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm not. Uh, but I, 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 want, I want you to know that our heart for this church is that we would be a church that functions meekly before God and before one another because it is that spirit of humility that draws people into the gospel. And so I love you guys. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for... I just thank you for this, for the elders, for the staff, for this community. I thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. I thank you for the ways that you care for your own. I thank you for the ministry of your love and your grace that has been so clearly over us all these years. And thank you just to continue to see people, more and more people coming back. And I pray that this church would not be built upon any man or woman, but it would just be built upon you, Jesus, as we surrender to your authority and your presence. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would show up in such power and that many would come to a saving knowledge of you. Thank you for this day. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey friends, this is Russ Lacey, one of the pastors here at Door of Hope Southeast. Thanks for listening to this teaching. We always want to encourage you to give to your local church and would never want to supplant that. But if you're a regular listener and would like to help our church as we seek to point people to Jesus and minister here in the city of Portland, we'd welcome your prayers and financial support. Just head over to doorofhopepdx.org and click Give from the menu bar. May God bless you.